0: Today, we're going to continue in the series we've been doing. Uh, We've been going through various passages of Scripture and uh, talking about making the most of life. I told you that passage that kind of drives what we're talking about in this series has been John 10, that Jesus came that we could have life, that we could have it abundantly. He came so we could have life, we could have it to the fullest. And we've talked about various parts of life time, talent, relationships, our money, and how to make the most of those. Today, we're going to talk about God's truth. And it's really foundational for everything else. We put it on the back end because without God's truth, His Word, uh, we can't apply any of the other stuff that we talked about. And so today we're going to talk about God's truth. We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to focus in on verse 16, but we're going to start reading about verse 13. So if you have your Bible, hopefully you do, you can go ahead and grab that and turn to 2 Timothy right now. And uh, as you're turning there, I'll tell you, I was thinking... Uh, This week, just about this message and what God's truth does in our lives. I was reminded of a a time a couple weeks ago, my wife and I were tucking our two middle girls. We've got four daughters and our two middle girls share a room with each other. We were both tucking one of them in. I was tucking in Ava, our second child, and she was laying in bed. My wife was laying in bed with Janie. Now, what you have to know about Janie is this. Janie loves every animal that God's ever created. She loves all animals. And my wife was reading her a book about cows. Now, the other thing is, all kids love chocolate, right? And all kids love sweets and all that kind of stuff. So I hear a question from my little daughter, Janie, as I'm tucking Ava in, that could only come from a kid. She says to my wife, as they're looking at these cows, where does chocolate milk come from? Like, what kind of cow makes chocolate milk? And so my wife thought that was kind of cute. She went and she posted on her Facebook page. One of my wife's friends, who will remain nameless, but you can find her if you go to my wife's Facebook page, said on the Facebook page, she said, My sister told me when I was a little girl that chocolate milk came from brown cows. And then she said, and I believed it until I was in high school. And she said, my sister, she went on in their post, she said, my sister also told me that the foam at the beach, you know how the beach will foam up at the edge of the shore, she said, my my sister told me that that was fish pee. (laughs) I'm going close to that stuff. And she said, my sister also told me that catfish actually meow. Well, there you go. You know what I learned? Her sister is a liar. <laughs> and we've all been lied to, haven't we? Have you ever been lied to? Like, Just think about it. Have you been lied to and believed the lie that was being told to you? Maybe you received an email, perhaps even this week, from your uncle's cousin's friend who happens to be related to the Prince of Nigeria and somehow knows you and has your email address and wants to give you $5 million. You just have to give him your bank account. I hope you didn't do it. Or maybe you were goofing around on the internet and somebody popped up a message to you and it said that if you just quit your job, you can make a gazillion dollars an hour working for Google from home and you don't even have to do anything. I hope you didn't quit your job. See, there are lies being told to us, hundreds of them, every day. Some of them are innocent, some of them are very dangerous, some of them are deadly. Many of them will ruin your faith if you believe them. All of them will change the way you live your life if you believe them. And so maybe it's as simple as, until this service, you thought that brown cows produced chocolate milk. Hey, who knows? People believe it in high school. But maybe you believe some more dangerous ones. I made a list this week of lies um, that we oftentimes believe. And you know, that would be an interesting thing for you to consider since today's Super Bowl Sunday Here's something for you to do. You know, we'll watch the commercials on the Super Bowl and a lot of times it's, you know, where the writer's funny, all that kind of stuff. Here's an exercise you can try with your family. Why don't you, if you have DVR, pause the TV after a commercial and ask your family, what lie are they trying to get us to believe? Or if you don't have DVR, just turn the TV off. They're not going to start football for a while. They're going to talk for a long time after those commercials are over with, so don't worry about it. Um, turn the TV off and just say, what lie are they trying to get us to believe? How are they trying to make us think here? And how we think will change how we live. Here's some lies that we oftentimes believe. Some of them you'll see in commercials today. Some of them you won't. Money can buy you happiness. There's one. Here's one I promise you'll see in a commercial today. I haven't seen the commercials yet, but I, I know you'll see this one. Real men drive trucks. Real men eat meat, probably red meat. Real men are idiots. Some of you are going, which one of those isn't true? Like, what's going on? What's going on? About real women are sex objects. You'll never measure up. You're not adequate. God can't love me. I don't know enough. I'm too short, too tall, too fat, too skinny, not strong enough. God can't use you. You're too bad. There's the lies. Here's a lie. You are the exception. So if God says He does love you, you're the exception. That's the lie you believe. How about this? Life is meaningless. Here's one that people believe for oftentimes a large segment of their lives, and then they change. Success equals significance. Here's a line. There is no hell. That'll change the way you live. We all worship the same God. It doesn't matter what you think, just what you do. My good works will outweigh my bad ones someday. Everyone ends up in heaven, or good people go to heaven, and who decides who's good? God doesn't care about our bedroom or bank account, just our heart. The New England Patriots don't cheat. All lies. (laughs) One of them is an innocent lie. The rest of them are dangerous. Some of the lies I just read to you are, are deadly. Many of them will ruin your faith. And so, how do you combat the lies? The way you combat the lies is with truth God's truth. And that's what he's given us in his word. And so today we're going to talk about how to make the most of God's truth. And you've got to ask yourself the question, how do I make the most of God's truth? And we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And what's happening here in 2 Timothy, there's a guy writing this letter to a guy named Timothy. His name is Paul. If you don't know Paul, he's what we call an apostle, a sent out one by Jesus Christ to really get the church going. And do some foundational work for us today. And he was a guy who had a dramatic conversion experience, had an incredible education in the Bible already, and then goes around and starts planting churches. In fact, a lot of the New Testament that we read are letters that this guy wrote to these churches, the church at Corinth, First and Second Corinthians, the church in Rome, the Roman believers that were in Rome, uh, the church at Ephesus. And he's writing this, though, to a guy named Timothy, not to a church, but to a person who pastors the church in Ephesus. In fact, this guy Timothy, many believe, is Paul's best friend. He says in the Bible elsewhere, um, there's no one like Timothy. And what's going on in this letter, it's the last letter that the Apostle Paul writes in the New Testament. It's probably the last letter he ever writes. He's in a Roman prison. He's facing execution. And he's writing to his friend Timothy, who he loves dearly. And what he emphasizes is the importance of God's word his truth, because he knows that Timothy's pastoring a church in a time period where lies are bombarding people, and he prepares Timothy for what things are going to happen in the last days. In the very beginning of chapter 3, if you have a copy of the scripture, you can read it with me, and we'll put it up on the screen. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verses 1 through 5, he says this, Timothy, he says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days, and then he describes what the end times are going to be like, and see if this sounds familiar, and think about Super Bowl commercials and life. People be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, entitlement, unholy, all kinds of things that God calls us terrible, we think are fun. Without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And here's a description of the church having a form of godliness. They look pious on the outside, but denying its power. There's nothing happening. It have nothing to do with them. And then he goes on to talk about the deception in the culture. And he starts talking about not just the deception that's taking place, but those who are deceiving, the false teachers, those who write the Super Bowl commercials, those who teach that the way that you get to heaven is by being a good person, by being good enough, that there's more than one way, that there is no hell. The false teachers. And he says about them in verse 13, not only are they deceiving other people, they believe their own lies. They're being deceived. They actually believe this stuff. Verse 13, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Verse 14, but as for you, now he's speaking to Timothy, and by implication us. Continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of. Be different than that. Because you know those from whom you learned it. Remember their character? Remember my character, Paul, saying to Timothy? And talking about Timothy's grandmother and mother who taught him the word. And now from infancy you've known the holy scriptures, talking about the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Remember that? So even the Old Testament points him to Christ, and God uses it for his salvation. Verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed, some of your translations say inspired by God, and it's useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. And here's the reason why. Verse 17. So that the man of God, speaking to Timothy specifically here by implication of us, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, furnished, given everything you need to live the life that God intended for you to live. The one we read about when we read Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, that before the beginning of time, God has a plan for your life as good works. Not separate than faith. You're saved by faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace. When you place, God's graciously given us this message of his son, Jesus Christ. We place our faith in that message, and as we live by faith, there are good works. It's his plan to prosper us, not to harm us, to bring glory to himself, which is our ultimate good, because that's what we are created for. And so what Timothy is told here in this passage by Paul is that God uses his word to transform us. Just think about what we just read. Verse 15, verse 17. Say what? They talk about transformation. Sandwich between, it's talking about God's word. Think about that. In verse 15, we were told that it was the scriptures, the holy scriptures, and talking about the Old Testament there, that actually made Timothy wise for salvation, that prepared him, that pointed him to Jesus Christ. It was the scripture that was ultimately used in his salvation. And it wasn't yours. Think about your story. Every one of you who've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, God used the scriptures. Now, J.D. just shared his story, and he was talking about being on a plane. God had already planted the scriptures in his heart. Some of you have seen a TV show that made you think of something, or maybe watched a movie or heard a song, but got triggered through his truth that he's got in his scriptures something in your heart. Some of you heard the preaching of the word, and maybe you walked an aisle, or there was a Sunday school teacher or an Awana class, and, and you raised your hand, or there was something that took place where the scripture was planted in your heart. For me, I, didn't, I wasn't here in preaching I remember a guy sat down with me and started to tell me the Bible. It was like the Philippian eunuch. I didn't, I didn't understand the scriptures. I was reading them myself. And then somebody sat down with me and explained to me from Isaiah, oh, the best I could possibly do was like a pile of dirty rags. That's depressing. But then told me how Jesus Christ came to pay for my attempts at right, my sinfulness. By dying on the cross and shared with me from Romans. How Jesus had paid for my sin and he rose from the dead and offered me life. Use the scriptures. Some of you, maybe like Timothy, had some loved ones who taught you the Bible and taught you the Bible faithfully, and then God used it. Maybe some of you were just reading the Bible, like Jonathan Edwards. They have a preacher preaching to him. He's reading through the Scriptures. He comes to Christ. Or some of you, like one of our elders, doing the same type of deal. Another one of our elders. He's praying, going to NC State, praying to the wall, reading from the Gospel of John. God revealed himself. It's his revelation, the Scriptures are. And he uses it to transform our lives. And so if we're going to make the most of the scriptures, we're going to be transformed by the scriptures. Verse 15 talks about how it's used for salvation. But then jump down to verse 17. I love what verse 17 says. It's not just used in salvation. It's like J.D. was sharing in his story. It's not just about there was sin and now I've been made new, I've been cleansed. But what about now? What's God teaching us Now? Because he's talking about after salvation, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, given everything you need, all the tools that are required. You can translate that word equipped, furnished. You've been furnished for the life that God intends for you. He's still transforming you. And so here's the deal. If we're going to make the most of God's truth, you must be transformed by God's truth. You must be and be being transformed by God's truth. And so if you're going to make the most of your time, you've got no shot apart from being transformed by God's truth. You're going to make the most of your money. You have no shot at making eternal investments. If you're not being transformed by God's truth, you're going to make the most of this life and live the abundant life, life to the fullest. He's given you the tools to do so in his word. You've got no shot apart from his truth. It's his truth that he uses to continually transform us. It's the primary way that he speaks to us. It's his truth. He says in James, James chapter 1, verse 18, talks about his truth, similar way that he does here in verse 15 and 17. In verse 18 he says... He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So he uses it in our salvation. You jump down a few more verses. Verse 21, verse 21 in James chapter 1 says this, Therefore, get rid of all moral filth. So he uses it in our transformation, our sanctification too. And the evil that's so prevalent in our times. These seemingly last days. And humbly accept the word that's planted in you. So we have to receive it and allow it to transform us, which can save you. So it's the word when then connected with faith that then transforms when we believe the truth rather than believing the lies that combats the lies that gives us the victory. And here in Second Timothy chapter 3, we'll focus in today on verse 16. It says in verse 16, all of it, all scripture is God breathed. Some of your translations say it's inspired by God. What does that mean, breathed by God, inspired by God? It doesn't mean inspired like a good poem makes you feel good, or a song kind of lifts your spirits. It's not inspired like that. It's inspired in the sense that God worked and moved in the lives of the guys that were writing the Bible, and there's a bunch of them. You know, Moses and Luke, and you read these different pro- Isaiah, the different prophets that are there, David, um, Peter, all different types of people and all different times and all different circumstances, and he uses their personalities, and he writes the scripture. How does that happen? Second Timothy 3.16 doesn't tell us. It just tells us, like, factually that it is true. What Peter tells us, in Second Peter, in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, he tells us what it means to be inspired by God, or that God would breathe the scriptures. Ultimately, it just means that God is the source, that they all come from him. Peter describes how it happens like this. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. Here's how it happened. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. Its origin came from God. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so it doesn't mean these men were perfect, but when they were writing Scripture, God perfected what they were saying. And he used it. It wasn't just Peter going, you know, i got a good idea. Moses, you know, it would be good for our community of Israelites if we did these ten things and kind of keep that thing. No, it was God speaking to and through them using their personalities their life experiences and that's why different letters are written different types of grammar different feel different vibes different circumstances and god superintended all of that as god was the source as he breathed his character into the scriptures so he could reveal himself to us and so the scriptures are not just well-written literature although they're that it's actually a book about jesus christ and who he is the old testament points to him the new testament shows him that's so why John chapter 1 starts, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and it's Jesus Christ. And the world didn't receive him. Do you know why? Because they loved darkness. They were in lies. But he shines light. And the way he shines light into our lives is through his Word. The all scripture that's being talked about here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verse 16, is being written to Timothy, would make him automatically think of the Old Testament that his, grandmother, that his mother had taught him. That's probably what's being referred to here by Paul, but as New Testament believers, we know this can also apply to the New Testament. So when it talks about all scripture here, we're talking about all of the Bible. How do we know it applies to the New Testament? Well, there's lots of ways we can tell. One of the ways is we know that Jesus, when he spoke after the Old Testament, and Jesus is speaking in the Gospels, he knows that his words are the words of God. He says it in John chapter 14 and verse 10. Jesus says, the words I say to you are not just my own, rather it is the Father living in me who's doing his work. So God's doing a work through my words. These words are God's words. John chapter 16, you could read it on your own, he tells guys that are going to be the apostles, his disciples, that the Holy Spirit's going to speak through them words of truth. And then in 1 Corinthians, they end up talking about how they know that the words, that they're when they're writing these words down, they know when they're writing Scripture. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 16, he refers to some of Paul's writings. Paul writes a bunch of the New Testament. As Peter's writing some, he talks about Paul's writing and compares them to Scripture. Look what he says. He writes the same way in all his letters. Now, it's interesting the contrast between Peter and Paul. God uses all kinds of different people. Paul, highly educated. He's got the best education. He's done really well. Peter is a fisherman, totally common man, not highly educated in that way. It says, Paul writes the same in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contains, contain some things that are hard to understand. I love that Peter told us that. So it wasn't just us that have a hard time with some of these things. Even Peter, who's writing some of the Bible had a hard time with some of the stuff Paul said. But then he says, here's what people do with it. Which ignorant and unstable people, the deceivers, they've distorted these things. And then notice what he says next. As they do the other scriptures. Oh, like Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. And... So you're comparing what Paul's writing to the other scriptures. And it's to their own destruction. And so even the New Testament writers were aware the New Testament was God's Word. And so all of it, all of Scripture is God-breathing. And what does that mean? Think about that for a second. All Scripture. And what do you know about the Bible? All the books, about 66 books in the Bible, lots of pages. All of it's from you, God? And all of it's useful, because that's the next word. All of it's useful, profitable, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. So all of it, like Leviticus. You read Leviticus, I was talking to a guy this week who's doing Bible study fellowship, and he said they got to Leviticus, and one of the teachers called it the parking brake of the Bible, because you get it in Genesis, Exodus, like you get to Leviticus, and it's like, what, this? I was reading it this morning. Reading this morning, Leviticus chapter 1, you can read, it talks about sacrificing pigeons and doves, and uh, I don't know, I was reading that, and I'm like, grab it by the wings, rip it in half, it's like bloody and gruesome, and then you burn it, but you pull the... What, what crops? What are you talking about? guts? like, what is that? And pull that out, and I'm going, this is useful? Like, how is this helpful? But did you know that it's in Leviticus that we actually get love your neighbor as yourself? That's what Jesus quotes when he's asked. What's the greatest commandment? Love God. And then he says, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. A lawyer in the story of the Good Samaritan says, love your neighbor as yourself. It comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. But if you don't study Leviticus, you don't know that. What about the genealogies? Do you ever read the genealogies? I've read the genealogies before and thought to myself, are you just testing me to see if I'm really going to read this? Yeah, like, like, all this, the narrative stuff's kind of good. And I get to the genealogy and it's like, hard name, hard name, hard name, begat, hard name, begat, hard name, begotten. What is all this begatting? Like, what is happening here? Is that just a test? But then you start looking at the genealogy. You know what you see in the genealogy? God shows us in the genealogies lots of things. One is, sometimes. His timing is in our timing. So this generation goes by, and this generation goes by, and this generation goes by. It also shows us he's patient, and these kings run faithful, and these kings run faithful, and these kings run, and then there's this guy, and there's revival, and he read the word. Sometimes it shows us how God keeps his promises. Like take, for instance, that Jesus was promised to come in the line of David, and then you see the genealogy going all through the scriptures that point to Jesus. Have you read Matthew chapter 1? Or talks about the genealogy of Jesus. Have you seen some of the people that are in that genealogy? Solomon, he's a failure, by the way. Tamar, there's a story. Rahab, she's a prostitute. And Jesus came in the line of Rahab? Do you know what God's showing us through the genealogies? Grace. Grace. He uses all kinds of people. He can use you. Grace in the Old Testament, Grace in the New Testament, continually grace. You can learn a lot from the genealogies. It's all of the scripture. is God-breathed, and it's useful in our lives, but we have to be in it. We have to study it. We have to devour it. We have to let God put his word in us. He's going to transform us, and the word has to be in us. And so how important is it? I brought with me today a couple of Bibles um, that remind me personally of how important the Bible is. One is an old King James Bible. It's got a zipper on it. It's been in my family for over 60 years. And uh, this is the Bible. It was in my house. Before I was a Christian, I remember I would go out and I would party and uh, get drunk and get high and come home and try and read the Bible. That's not how I would recommend, by the way, studying the scriptures. And we joked last week with Kay about inhaling. I was inhaling and I come back and uh, like JD was saying in his story, I felt empty still. Like I'm doing everything I want to do and I still feel empty inside. And so for some reason, unchurched family, I thought, well, I'm going to grab that. There's got to be an answer in this Bible. And I start reading this Bible and I open it up and it's got the thou's and the thussus and the seemeth knots, and I didn't like Shakespeare either. And I was looking for a code. I was looking for like the code in the Bible. Like just tell me the key to life. It's got to be hidden in here somewhere. And I'm reading through the scriptures and I'm not finding it. And then a guy sits down with me and explains to me the code, the key. It's Jesus Christ. He is the truth and the way and the life. And no one comes to the Father except for through him. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. It's all about this person, Jesus Christ. And he introduced me to this person, Jesus Christ. I trusted Jesus to be my Savior a few days after that. And uh, he invited me to come to church. I hadn't really been going to church um, at that point. And I remember the first time I went to church, he gave me another Bible, which was this one. Um, it's an NIV student Bible. It's a newer version of English uh, that I was being given. And in the front of it, he wrote to me about how important the word is. And um, he wrote this. He said, Scott, this book is the most important book you'll ever own. Read it daily. Memorize it. Obey it. It'll give you happiness and success. God bless you. I will pray for you daily. So on February twenty second, 1995. I was 18 years old. He still prays for me daily. A friend of mine now. And uh, he put two verses in here. One of them was Psalm one nineteen, nine through 11. I was 18 years old, he gave me this verse. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119. The other verse he gave me in this Bible was Joshua 1.8. Joshua is about to take over for Moses in that context. and God says this to Joshua. He says, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it. Not skim it. Not glance over, not a verse a day, keep the devil away. You chew on it. You process it. Day and night, all the time. So that you may be careful to do everything written in it. How can you do everything written in it if you don't know what it says? And then you will be prosperous and successful so I'm going to use you as the leader I desire for you to be. I have a plan to prosper you, not to harm you, and to bring glory to myself through you. It's what you're created for, so it'll ultimately be for your good and to live the life that I intended for you to live, and the way you do it is through my word. So how important is the word? It's pretty important. And you see what the word says about the word. If you keep reading that Psalm 119, I mentioned just one section for a young man about keeping his way pure, verses 9 through 11. Psalm 119 is 176 verses all about the word. It's the word about the word. In fact, it's outlined according to the Hebrew alphabet. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. It'd be like an acrostic. You'd put the words next to it and write this, this whole structure of the psalm is that. Kent Hughes, a commentator, Bible commentator, says about Psalm 119, it's the A to Z about the word. Do you want to know more about the word, read Psalm 119. But you go throughout the whole scriptures, and the scripture talks about the scriptures. Moses, a guy who was writing some of the scriptures in the book of Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, after writing the law and then singing a song, says this to the people. Isn't just, here's some good ideas I had. I I think I came up with this. He said to them, Take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. They are not just idle words for you. They are your life. So the word is life, Moses says. Psalm 19, you can read on your own, but in, in Psalm 19, it says this. It talks about the Word. says the Word is perfect, it is sure, it is right, it is pure, it is clean, it is true, it makes wise the simple, restores the soul, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, provides righteousness, and it endures forever. I, I saw that one and thought, endures forever? Like, think about the time that we live in. What endures forever? All the fads that come and go. Remember MySpace? Nope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Exactly. Remember those jeans you wore when you were 16? No, 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 don't bring that up. My wife posted a picture on Facebook this week. That is bad news, old pictures. That is out of date. What was I thinking? Well, at the time, it seemed like a good idea. The fats, they come and they go. And do you know what the Bible says? The grass withers and the flowers fade. Isn't that true? Things come and go. But the word of God will endure forever. So you're being given something that lasts forever. Peter quotes that. It's stated in Isaiah. God's word. In Ephesians, God's word is called a sword. Uh, it's talking about spiritual battle and how there's an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy us. There's a spiritual warfare taking place, things we don't even see. And it talks about the armor that we're given, but it gives us one offensive weapon. This is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Ephesians 6, verse 17. In Hebrews chapter 4, the word of God is talked about as a double-edged sword. It can cut through, and we oftentimes remember, bone and marrow... But did you know that the next part of the verse talks about cutting through our conscience, our thoughts, our motives, pierces our hearts and convicts us. James talks about the word of God as a mirror to us. Jesus, when praying, is high priestly prayer. In John chapter 17, oftentimes we talk about unity of the body and things that are talked about at the beginning. Do you know when he prays towards the end of that prayer? John chapter 17 and verse 17, he says, Sanctify them, make them more like me. Transform them, change them, be transformed by God's truth. Transform them by the truth. Your word is truth present the church as a cleansed bride, washed in the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. It's Jesus Christ. It's a person. It's not just good literature. It's a weapon. It's useful. It's important. Jesus Christ himself, when being tempted, the creator of the universe, God incarnate in the flesh, the Word himself, is being tempted by Satan. And what does he do? He can speak things into existence out of nothing. Walk on water. Heal blind eyes. He doesn't do a miracle. He goes to the word. Luke chapter 4, verse 4. When being tempted to turn stones to bread, instead of doing a miracle, which he's capable of doing, he says, man does not live on bread alone. Then he goes on to say, that's Deuteronomy 8, 3, by the way. He's quoting the scripture. And he says, but on the very words of God. And so... To Moses, he tells us the scripture is life. John tells us that it's the person of Jesus Christ. It's God's character being revealed to us. God inspired scriptures. his character being breathed into the scriptures. And Jesus tells us it's his food. What is it to us? It seems like it's important. And people that know that it's important, you see it because it changes the way they live their lives. I was reading a story this week about a guy... In Kansas City, who was in a really bad accident, an explosion. He was blinded, um, severely disfigured, lost both of his hands. And he said his biggest disappointment was he wasn't going to be able to read the word anymore. And then he heard about a woman in England who had been reading the Bible in Braille with her lips. And so he ordered several books of the Bible in Braille. And he tried to read them with his lips, but when he put the Bible up to his lips, he realized the nerve endings in his lips had been damaged too bad. He couldn't discern the characters, the raised characters in Braille. So he was disappointed in that because he wasn't able to do it that way. But one time he was raising the the Braille to his lips, and he bumped it with his tongue. And he said, it was like an aha moment, I can read the Bible with my tongue. When I had read that story, it said that at that point, he had read through the Bible four times with his tongue. And so why don't we read the Bible? I mean, a lot of people say time, you know, time's an issue. I'm so busy. I understand. We're all busy. Everybody's busy. There's lots of stuff. There have been days that I've had before i like, I haven't even read the Bible. Days that just something happens or you wake up late, whatever happens going on, you get busy and the schedule takes place. Do you know that they've proven that you can read uh, through the whole Bible in 71 hours? The way they've proven this is they have the Bible on audio, so MP3s. CDs, they probably still have cassettes. Maybe there's an 8-track out there for whoever's using that, a record maybe, I don't know. It's audio. There's audio Bible available, and they read through the Bible in 71 hours, which isn't that long, especially when you compare it to, and this can be convicting, you compare it to how much time the average American spends watching television. That's about how much we spend watching television in a month. So if we just didn't watch TV and read the Bible, for we could read through the entire Bible in a month. Every time we'd go to watch TV, we'd just pull the Bible out, start so reading the Bible, even if you don't want to do that. If you read at that rate that they're reading the, the Bible, you could read the entire Bible if you read 15 minutes a day in less than a year. So is it really time? It's not time, just so you know. Time's not the issue. It's importance. That's the issue. Is it important to us? And the reality is, if we're not in it, then that reveals that it's not. We can say we're people of the Word, but if all we do is carry a Bible around and the Word's not in us, then we're deceiving ourselves. you know what's probably also happening we're being deceived and we believe other things are more important and so we are being lied to and we don't even realize the life that god intends for us is being stolen from us we're being robbed and eventually we're going to be destroyed and so you can't make the most of the life that god has for you and the issue is really not an issue of time it's an issue of love do you love the one who's writing to you because the book's about the author If you were away at war, on a mission, in a battle, and and someone you loved, your boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, was writing you a letter, would you say, It's too long, there's parts I don't understand, I just don't have time? No, you devour the letter. And here God's written to us, and He tells us why. It's all useful, it's all profitable. And I'm going to use it to transform you. And here's how I transform you. And he gives us four characteristics of the Bible. Teaching you, rebuking you, correcting you, and training you in righteousness. Teaching is kind of the general statement that's made there in that list of four in 2 Timothy 3.16. It's profitable, useful to teach you. Well, yeah, you have to know what it is he expects of you. If you're ever going to do what he expects of you, you've got to know what that thing is. The prophet Hosea says in Hosea chapter 4 and verse 6, My people are being ruined. Their lives are getting jacked up. You know why? Lack of knowledge. They don't even know what they're supposed to be doing. So God teaches us His Word. He reveals Himself to us. And how does He do it? Three different ways. It's told in this passage: rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Think about rebuking. Rebuking is He's pointing out to us the problems. He's revealing to us, showing us the errors in our lives, the things are happening, Us wander off from his will. And think about rebuke throughout the scripture. What about David? Have you ever heard about David? You can read about David. Second Samuel chapter twelve. What ends up happening is that David gets rebuked. He's a king. He's probably the most famous king that's ever lived, second king of Israel. A poet, a warrior, an incredible king, called a man after God's own heart, but he screws up. He ends up sleeping with another man's wife. It's about a year later in Second Samuel chapter twelve. And his friend Nathan comes to him. Nathan comes to him and says, I'm going to tell you a story. A story of two guys. There's a rich guy, there's a poor guy. The rich guy has a whole bunch of sheep. The poor guy only has one lamb. And the poor guy loves the lamb, and he sings to the lamb, and he loves the lamb. He loves the lamb like a daughter. And then the rich guy has a guest come to his house, and he's got to feed the guy. But rather than taking one of his own sheep, he goes to the poor guy down the street, steals his lamb, kills that lamb, feeds it to his friend. David gets irate, and Nathan says, you're the guy. You're the guy in the story. Because God had blessed you and given you not only a wife of your own, you had many wives. And you took somebody else's wife. And then you had that guy, and you covered it up because you had the means and you had the ability to cover it up. You've been covering up the line, you've been living according to you. Now you even don't even see yourself in the story. It's a rebuke. Or what about Peter? Peter thinks he's saying things that are the best interest of Jesus. He thinks he wants what God wants. His ways and our ways aren't the same. You've got to be careful when you take counsel, even from people who go to church. Is it true according to what the Bible says? Peter says to Jesus, you can't go to the cross. You're not going to be betrayed by the elders and the chief priests. No, you can't do that. That's not how this is going to work out, Jesus. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. It's rebuke. Paul says, if it wasn't for the Bible, Paul writes a bunch of the Bible, says if it wasn't for the scriptures, I wouldn't even know what coveting really is. Like maybe I could figure out murder was a bad idea, but coveting, I wouldn't even know that coveting was bad. I'll tell you, when I first became a Christian, I remember, got the Bible, start reading the Bible, and I started meeting with the guy who told me about Jesus, told me about placing my faith in Jesus, the promises of Christ. And I remember the day he talked to me about lust. I will be, I am as honest as I can possibly be, that I know in my own mind, I didn't know that lust was a sin. I knew that adultery was a sin. But you can't even think about adultery. Like, I thought I was doing pretty good. Like, I came to Bible study the day thinking, I'm doing pretty good. And you know, he started telling me that lust is a sin. I'm like, I'm screwed up. Like, I got a lot of problems. I, I, thought, there was, I thought that was like just to clean up the behavior stuff. But the thoughts and the motives and all that stuff matters too. And it was a rebuke of the scriptures. Because God's word is like a, a mirror to us. And if we didn't get in the scriptures, you know what some of us would do? we walk around thinking we're a lot better off than we are. It would be like the guy, in, you remember the guy in high school who thought every girl wanted to date him. Hey, baby, how you doing? Remember, you remember that guy? If you're sitting there going, I don't know who that is, that was you. Anyway, anyway. But then the guy goes before the mirror and there's like a whopper zit on his forehead, Right? That's James. James says, Don't be like the person who looks, walks away and doesn't even know what you look like. You've got to look in the Word. The Word reveals you to you. You see yourself in the Scriptures. He rebukes us. But He doesn't just rebuke us. The next word is He corrects us. Excellent. Well, that's the same as rebuke. No, it's not the same as rebuke. To be corrected is actually the positive version of rebuke. Rebuke is the negative, it shows you the things that are wrong. To be corrected is to be restored. To be corrected is, you were going on the wrong path, rebuke, and I'm going to show you the right path to go on. The word cor- uh, correct there, well, the way it was used, it wasn't used um, in other places in, in uh, Scripture, but in secular Greek literature at this time, the way the word would be used would be, if something were, an object fell over, someone would pick it back up, they'd correct it. If someone were falling, they were stumbling, and then someone would help them get their balance back so they could walk straight. They would be restored. You think about how the scripture restores us. What happens with David? If you know the story of David, he goes on to pray in the Psalms. After his sin with Bathsheba, Psalm 51, restore me the joy of my salvation. God does. He writes in Psalm 32, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not hold against him. Because he was forgiven, because he repented after he was rebuked. So what do we have to do? We have to come with a humble heart. Like the psalmist says, search me, know me, show me any wicked way in me. Rebuke me. And then show me the right way. Show me the path so that I can walk in it. What happens with Peter? Peter denies Jesus, right? He denies Jesus three times Some of the ways he's remembered. Uh, Jesus told him, you're going to deny me. Peter said, no way. These other guys, they might do it. They're losers, but I won't deny you. And Peter denies him. And then what ends up happening? John chapter 21. Peter denied Jesus three times. Three times Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Then go feed my sheep because now you've not only been rebuked, you've been restored and I'm going to use you. So we also need to be rebuked, we also need to be restored. He tells us in the New Testament how he restores us. He says that he is faithful. We're not faithful. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. says he is faithful. If we confess our sins, he is faithful he is just, so it's based on him, not on us. Oh, we wouldn't know that. Because what we would do on our own way is we think, well, I did this bad thing, now i going to do a good thing to undo it. That's just naturally how our minds think. So if I just do more good stuff than I do bad stuff, that's not what God says. If we just put ourselves in, based on him and what he's done, he will forgive us our sins and purify us from unrighteousness. He will cleanse us of everything. He will restore us and make us new. The scripture is what restores us. And it's also used, a uh, third thing in there, to train us in righteousness. To be trained in righteousness. And the word for training, uh, actually the root word that's there is child. It was used originally of training a child. And if you think about it, if you've, any of you have had children, those of you have had children, you have to train a child to do everything. Like everything. They don't even know how to eat. I was thinking about this week when we had our first baby and brought her home. And at one point she was drinking out of a bottle. And I remember the day she could hold the bottle herself. Like not make the bottle, not clean up the mat, like nothing. But she could hold it. I felt liberated. She can hold the Bible, the bottle. Which reminds me of a verse too, that like babies, we should crave the scriptures like milk. But think about it, we have to be trained about everything. Everyone in this room had to be potty trained. That's a weird thing to think about at church, isn't it? But we're all thinking about it now. But you had to be trained for that. You had to be trained how to use the bathroom. You had to be trained how to eat. You had to be trained how to clean. If you have any special skills, if you're an engineer, if you're a mechanic, if you're a nurse, if you're an accountant, if you, probably whatever job you do, you had to have training for that job. Why is it that we don't think we have to be trained on how to be a Christian? Many of us think that, oh, you trust Jesus as your Savior, and then if I just, like, show up at church or hang around with some Christian people, like, it's just going to, one day... One, at some miraculous moment, osmosis, or like you're going to get zapped with some Jesus juice, or whatever, you're going to just be like Jesus. That's not how it happens. You get trained. The way he trains us is through the scriptures. Think about what a trainer's like. Have you ever been to the gym, seen a trainer, yelling at the person, or you ever watch Biggest Loser? yelling. One minute they're yelling like, three more reps, two more reps, ten more, nine, eight, five. 20, wait, this isn't how I count. <laughs> so you think you're never going to measure up, right? And then what do you see the trainers do on that show after that? And then they come and they deal with, why is it that you got of shape in the first place? Let's talk about some core issues. Let's deal with your heart. Let's think about what the scripture does. Woe to you, you hypocrites. You tithe, you don't love God. Woe to you, you whitewashed tombs. You, you, you're all messed up on the inside. You think because other people think you're okay that God does? He yells at us. He's rebuking us. Then the same guy says, is life hard for you? Are you weary and burdened? Come. Come to me. I'll take care of it. I'll give you rest for your soul. It's training us. Sometimes we need one. Sometimes we need the other. And all of the scripture is inspired by God. Is God breathed? Is His character that then bring transformation in our lives as it points us to our Savior who is the Word? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word is God. It's Jesus Christ. We're living in a place of very dark. But He shines the light. He is the light. And what does He give us the light? He shows us through His Word. By training us. A lot of times we think training, we think legalism, like rules, and it's going to be hard, and I've got to obey all the things. And, did you know that, that actually is the training that leads to the freedom? Don Whitney in his book, a book I recommended to you in your e group study. Uh, It's called uh, Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life. He talks about this. You think about anybody who's really good at something, and you watch them, and it seems effortless for them to do something. That's because they've spent thousands and thousands of hours doing it. NBA player, shooting a jump shot. Looks different than my jump shot. They've spent thousands and thousands of hours. You watch them dribble, and it's like there's glue on them. Like the ball's just like everywhere. They didn't come out of the womb doing that. They have some God-given talents and abilities. Yeah, but they spent thousands and thousands of hours getting to that place. Think of Jad, who plays guitar at our church. I can call that guy up right now. I could, I could say, come up here and, and play finger style on the acoustic guitar, some song so that while we repent, while we talk to you, the Lord, and we just, we'll be listening, to he'll play a song. I don't know anyone else could play it. And it seems effortless. You know why? Because he spent thousands and thousands of hours to get to that place. We talk about scriptures where it says that God promises that we stand before someone in persecution or we have an opportunity to give a testimony that we're gonna, God's going to bring the word to our mind. Where's he going to bring the word to if there's no reservoir? What's he pulling from? See, we've got to be in the word. So the word can be in us and then transform us. It's the person of Jesus Christ. And he gives us what we need. Why? Why does all this happen? Remember verse 17. I'll just conclude with that. He says, so that you, person of God, may be thoroughly equipped, furnished, given every tool for every good work. So you're given what you need for the mission that he sends you on. And you have a different task that God wants you to do today than I have, but we're all on this mission of making disciples. And he gives us what we need to do it. And I think about that. I like action movies. Do you watch some of the action movies ever? You see like Mission Impossible or maybe some of you like Batman and the the guys that are going out on the mission, they get incredible tools, don't they? Like an ink pen that can cut through metal with some laser that pops out of it or whatever. Something you can put a contact on and gives you different retinal things for retinal scans. You get the cuff links that in case you fall off of a building, it will be like a bungee cord. For all those times I fall off a building, it uh, will be a bungee cord that shoots out of your wrist and you catch it and you don't die. So you have everything you need for the mission you're going on. And God tells us that's what his word is. It's everything that we need, fully furnished, given every tool, equipped for everything that could happen. So when you're living in a culture where people are abusive and disobedient to their parents and they love pleasure rather than more than they love God and they're brutal and they're not lovers of the good and they're treacherous and they're rash and the deceived are deceiving others, you have everything you need. But you've got to be in it. Or else what happens is you believe the lies. Maybe some of the lies I read at the beginning of the service, maybe you have different lies that you believe The way you battle those is through the scriptures which teaches us, rebukes us, corrects us, trains us in righteousness so that we can be the man, the woman of God that's fully equipped for the life that God intends for us to live. So you've got to be in the word. Practical, just getting real practical to you. You want to be in the word, we'll give you tools as much as we can as a church. Um, If you'd like to learn how to study the Bible, so we talked about reading the Bible, being in the Bible, you want to study the Bible? That sounds like an intimidating word. Um, Whitney, in his book, he says the difference between studying the Bible and reading the Bible oftentimes means you hold a pen and you write things down. You want to learn how to do that better, our pastors our elders would love to sit down with you one-on-one or maybe with a small group and teach you that. If you want to do that, write it on your worship program today, just in the prayer request section. I'd love to meet with a pastor and elder to learn how to study the Bible. If you could, put down some times that you're available. That'd be great. If you want just a reading plan, we've got that for you. You can grab it today as you go out to the guest kiosk service, uh, guest kiosk deal that's out there. I don't remember the exact title, but the banner and all that business. um, We've got them out there. We'll email them to you this week, too, how to read through the Bible in a year give you a plan because a lot of times you read Genesis and you hit Leviticus numbers like all those names give you a plan you can do that get through that but you got to be in the word let me pray for us okay, I'm, for prayer today I'm going to just read from John chapter 1 over us as a church so we can bow our heads and, and pray and, and I'll read from John 1 about Jesus being the word once I find John 1 we'll pray John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. That life was with the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light. So that through him all men might believe. That's why the Word is written. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to every man. who's was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was not made through him, although the world was made through him, was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision. Our husband's will, but born of God. And verse 14. The Word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, and the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen.